Chapter 13 from Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3 by John Hay and John George Nicolay. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abraham Lincoln, A History, Volume 3, Chapter 13. Following the successive ordinances of secession passed by the cotton states, their delegations withdrew one by one from Congress. In this final step, their senators and representatives adopted no concerted method, but went according to individual convenience or caprice, some making the briefest announcement of their withdrawal, others delivering addresses of considerable length. These parting declarations contain nothing of historical interest. They are a mere repetition of what they had said many times in debate, complaints of northern aggression and allegations of northern hostility. They fail to make any statement or acknowledgment of aggressions and hostility on the part of the South against the North. The ceremony of withdrawal, therefore, was formal and perfunctory pre-announced and recognized as a foregone conclusion, it attracted little attention from Congress and the public. Only two cases were exceptional, that of Mr. Bellini, the representative from Louisiana, who, as already mentioned, remained loyal to the Union and retained his seat in the House, and that of Senator Wigfall of Texas, who radically and outspokenly disloyal yet kept his seat in the senate not only through the remainder of mr buchanan's term but even during the special session assembled according to custom to confirm the nominations made by the new president immediately after his inauguration one of the remarkable coincidences of the secession conspiracy is that on the same day which witnessed the meeting of a peace convention in washington to deceive and confuse the public opinion of the North with discussion of an impossible compromise, the delegates of the seceded states convened at Montgomery, Alabama, to consolidate rebellion and prepare for armed resistance. It is not impossible that this was a piece of strategy purposely designed by the secession leaders, for the Washington Peace Conference, despite its constant avowals of a desire to promote union, was originated and managed by the little clique of Virginia conspirators, whose every act, if not preconceived, at least resulted in treasonable duplicity. The secession conventions of the cotton states had appointed delegates equal in number to their former senators and representatives in Congress. These met in Montgomery, Alabama, on the fourth day of February, 1861, to form a Southern Confederacy. The Washington Caucus, it will be remembered, suggested the 15th of the month. But such had been the success, or rather the want, of opposition to the movement, that it was probably considered advisable to hasten the program, and indeed of only having preliminary secession complete by the 4th of March to finish the whole structure of an independent government before the inauguration of Lincoln. Thus far, Mr. Buchanan had not offered the slightest impediment to this insurrection. It might reasonably be inferred that this inaction on his part would continue to the end of his term. 
Mr. Lincoln would be powerless until officially invested with the executive duties, and thus the formal organization of a Southern Confederacy could proceed at convenient leisure and in perfect immunity from disturbance. The meeting at Montgomery had its immediate origin in the resolutions of a committee of the Mississippi legislature adopted January 29, and it is another evidence of the secret and swift concert of secession leaders that in six days thereafter the delegates of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Florida were assembled for conference. The delegates from Texas joined them later on. An organization was effected by choosing Hal Cobb chairman, and the body called itself a Provisional Congress, though it was merely a Revolutionary Council, invested with no direct representation of the people but appointed by the secession conventions. Its reactionary spirit was shown in returning to the antiquated and centralizing mode of voting by states. This same rule under the old Congress of the Confederation had produced nothing but delay and impotence, and earned deserved contempt. And these identical delegates, after incorporating the rule in their provisional scheme of government, immediately rejected it when framing their permanent one. We may infer that they employed it at the moment because it was admirably suited to the use of cliques and the purpose of intrigue. Very little more than half the delegates of four states could carry a measure, and the minority of total membership could exercise full power of legislation. A project of government was perfected on February 8, and the name of the Confederate States of America was adopted. The first project was provisional only, to serve for one year, and the Provisional Congress retained legislative power for the same period. The temporary continuance of certain United States laws and officials was provided for. On the following day, February 9, it elected Jefferson Davis of Mississippi president and Alexander H. Stevens of Georgia vice president of the new Confederacy. The body then set itself more seriously at work to prepare a permanent constitution which should go into effect a year later. This labor it completed and adopted on the 11th of March. In their permanent constitution, as in the provisional one, they adhered closely to the letter and spirit of the Constitution of the United States, making few changes other than those which the pretensions and designs of the rebellion made essential. The new Constitution professed to be established by each state acting in its sovereign and independent character, instead of simply by we the people. It provided that in newly acquired territory, the institution of Negro slavery as it now exists in the Confederate States shall be recognized and protected by Congress and by the territorial government. Also for the right of transit and sojourn for slaves and other property, and the right to reclaim slaves and other persons to service or labor. It did not, as consistency required, provide for the right of secession or deny the right of coercion. On the contrary, all its implications were against the former and in favor of the latter, for it declared itself to be the supreme law of the land, binding on the judges in every state. It provided for the punishment of treason and declared that no state should enter into any treaty, alliance, or confederation grant letters of mark and reprisal, coin money, lay duties, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, make any compact with another state or with a foreign power. A sweeping practical negation of the whole heretical dogma of state supremacy upon which they had built their revolt. Stevens, being a 
member of the Congress, was sworn into office as Vice President February 10. Davis, with becoming modesty, remained absent during the election. Being sent for, he arrived and was formally inaugurated on February 18. His inaugural address presents few salient points. In later times, he has disavowed the fiery and belligerent harangues the newspapers reported him to have made on his way to assume his new duties. Perhaps the most important announcement of his inaugural was the opinion that the new Confederacy might welcome the border slave states. But beyond this, he continued, if I mistake not the judgment and will of the people, a reunion with the states from which we have separated is neither practicable nor desirable. Mr. Davis, in his rise and fall of the Confederate government, written 15 years after the war, takes some pains to make the very remarkable assertion that the South did not rebel, secede, and fight to preserve and extend slavery, but only to maintain the equality of the states. The generation which fought the war needs no proof of the incorrectness of this declaration, but the historian of the future, without such contemporary knowledge, may think this claim, so gravely put forth by the leader of the South, possesses some critical value. It is therefore worth a moment's attention. Of what did the equality of the states consist? One, in a portion of local sovereignty and independence. Two, of a federal representation in government. Three, of federal rights of citizenship. An attempt to specify the details of rights and privileges embraced under these three general heads would fill a volume. They include a right to territorial area, to state boundaries, to a state constitution, to state laws, to a governor and executive officers, a legislature, a judiciary, to senators and representatives in Congress, to presidential electors, to elections, to taxation, to police, to a portion of eminent domain, to state and national citizenship, and no end of other powers and incidents. Out of this mass of equal rights or equality, as he would call it, equality local, equality national in government, equality individual under national laws, he, as a member of the Committee of Thirteen, in the crisis of the secession controversy, made but one distinct allegation of privation or denial, namely the right to take slave property into federal territories and national protection for it when there. If Mr. Davis could show that the North claimed the right for itself and denied it to the South, his claim, meager, almost microscopic as it is, would be proved. But his argument totally fails when it is remembered that the North freely permitted and guaranteed to the South every property right in the territories which she claimed for herself, and that she only denied to the South as she denied to herself property right in slaves anywhere except under exclusive state jurisdiction. So much for theory, but what of practical and popular belief as the basis of popular action in secession and rebellion? It would be impossible to repeat the multitude of assertions of Southern writers, speakers, addresses of officials, and formal resolutions of parliamentary and legislative bodies. On this point, we must be content to let Mississippi, in her secession convention assembled, refute the afterthought of the ex-president of the rebel confederacy. In her declaration of the immediate causes which induce and justify the secession of the state of Mississippi from the Federal Union, she said, Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest in the world. 
A blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. That blow has long been aimed at the institution and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left us but submission to the mandates of absolute abolition or a dissolution of the Union, whose principles had been subverted to work out our ruin. We must either submit to degradation and the loss of property worth four billions of money, or we must secede from the Union. This was adopted Saturday, January 26, 1861, by the convention assembled at Jackson, Mississippi, which ordained secession. If we needed any comment on this formal announcement by the Convention of Mississippi, one is conveniently furnished in the address of the commissioner whom that state sent to urge Georgia to secede. Said he, Mississippi is firmly convinced that there is but one alternative. This new union with Lincoln, black Republicans, and free Negroes without slavery, or slavery under our old constitutional bond of union without Lincoln, black Republicans, or free Negroes either, to molest us. These formulas of the paramount value of the institution so abound in the literature of the secession period that it seems a waste of space to quote others, and yet there is one of such prominence and authority that we cannot forbear to add it. The Vice President of the Confederate States, Alexander H. Stephens, chosen like Davis because he felt the desire and could speak the hope of the South, made a speech in Savannah a few weeks after his inauguration in which he explained the benefits and improvements of the new Confederate Constitution. In this he said, The prevailing ideas entertained by him, Jefferson, and most of the leading statesmen at the time of the formation of the old Constitution were that the enslavement of the Africa, African was in violation of the laws of nature, that it was wrong in principle, socially, morally, and politically. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This, our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. The substratum of our society is made of the material fitted by nature for it, and by experience we know that it is best, not only for the superior but for the inferior race, that it should be so. It is indeed in conformity with the ordinance of the Creator. It is not for us to inquire into the wisdom of His ordinances or to question them, for his own purposes, he has made one race to differ from another, as he has made one star to differ from another star in glory. The great objects of humanity are best attained when there is conformity to his laws and decrees, in the formation of governments as well as in all things else. Our confederacy is founded upon principles in strict conformity with these laws. This stone, which was rejected by the first builders, is become the chief of the corner, the real cornerstone in our edifice. Superficially, it appeared that the new government had been agreed upon among the leaders with unusual harmony and unanimity, and such is the impression conveyed in the books written many years after by the two principal chiefs. But plausible reports have come down by tradition that no previous legislative body had ever developed an equal amount of jealousy and bitterness to that which manifested itself in the Provisional Congress, that there were more candidates for president than states in the Confederacy, Georgia alone having furnished four aspirants, and that the rivalry between Toombs and Cobb, in fact, brought about the selection of Davis, 
who had openly expressed his preference for the post of general in chief of the future rebel armies. Cobb might indeed dispute the prize of leadership with Davis, and especially with Toombs, who was of all the candidates least suited for such a position. It was Cobb who was the master spirit of secession intrigue in Buchanan's cabinet. It was Cobb who carried the wavering Georgia Convention into secession. It was Cobb who reappeared as the dominating power in the Montgomery Congress. Practically, it was Cobb who, by recent secret manipulations, had made the Confederacy possible and erected the Confederate Constitution. He might, without vanity, aspire to become its chief officer, yet, with a truer recognition of the fitness of things, the choice of the delegates fell upon Davis, who, for a longer period and with deeper representative characteristics, had been the real embodiment and head of the conspiracy. Jefferson Davis was born in Christian, afterwards Todd, County, Kentucky, June 3, 1808. Soon afterwards, his father removed to Mississippi, but the boy was sent to complete education, begun by home and academic studies, to Transylvania University, where he remained till the age of 16. Appointed in that year a cadet at the Military Academy at West Point, he received the thorough training of that institution, graduating in June 1828. He was then attached to the Army and served as a lieutenant of infantry in the Black Hawk War and other campaigns against the Indians. He resigned his military commission in 1835, having attained the grade of first lieutenant of dragoons. Returning to Mississippi, he secluded himself in plantation life, devoting his time largely to political studies calculated to qualify him for a public career. In 1843, he launched himself on the side of Mississippi polities by a speech in the Democratic State Convention which attracted considerable notice. From the first, he became a central party figure in his state, was made a presidential elector in 1844 and chosen a representative in Congress in 1845. When the Mexican War broke out, Davis's military training and experience naturally carried him into the campaign as colonel of a volunteer regiment called the Mississippi Rifles, and he rendered valuable service and one deserved distinction in the storming of Monterey and the Battle of Buena Vista. Returned from the war, the governor of Mississippi appointed him to the United States Senate to fill a vacancy. When the next legislature met, it confirmed the governor's choice by electing him for the remainder of the term, and a subsequent legislature re-elected him for the full term succeeding. From the beginning to the end of his public career, Davis posed as a disciple of Calhoun and an advocate of the extreme doctrine of states' rights. His maiden speech in the Mississippi Convention of 1843 was to recommend Calhoun as an alternative presidential candidate. His parting address on leaving the Senate in 1861 drew a contrast between Calhoun as the advocate of nullification and himself as the advanced defender of secession. So also when President Polk offered him a commission as Brigadier General of Volunteers to reward his military service in Mexico, the quixotism, which was a marked feature of Davis's character, moved him to employ the incident for the ostentatious championship of states' rights. He declined his offer, his biographer says, on the ground that no such commission could be conferred by federal authority, either by appointment of the president or by act of Congress. His next states' rights exploit, occurred in 1851, a strong party in Mississippi violently opposing the compromise measures of 1850 organized a resistance movement in that state and undertook upon that issue to elect General Quitman governor in 1851. 
A preliminary election, however, in the month of September showed them to be some 7,000 votes in the minority, whereupon Quitman withdrew from the contest. Jefferson Davis immediately resigned his full term in the United States Senate and took up the canvass for governor of Mississippi, which Quitman had abandoned. Davis's short campaign was brilliant but unsuccessful. He was beaten about 1,000 votes by Henry S. Foote, the Union candidate, who had also resigned the remainder of his senatorship to make the contest. The defeat appeared to have a salutary influence upon Davis's politics, but it proved transient. In the presidential campaign of 1852, a forlorn hope of the state's rights fanatics nominated Quitman for president. Davis, with a wiser calculation, forsook his reckless friends and supported Pierce, and for this adhesion, Pierce gave him a seat in his cabinet as Secretary of War. The history of the Kansas trouble shows how faithful he was in this position to pro-slavery interests, and when Buchanan succeeded Pierce, he again became a senator from Mississippi and assumed the leadership of the ultra-Democrats. Years afterwards, he explained that in abandoning for a while his extreme course, he was conforming his actions to the decision which Mississippi pronounced in 1851 in favor of the Union. His opinions, he said, the result of deliberate convictions, he had no power to change. When, therefore, he entered the cabinet of President Pierce in 1853 as Secretary of War, and then when again on the occasion of President Buchanan, the legislature of Mississippi returned him to the Senate, he was, by his own declaration and by the evidence of his subsequent words and deeds, only an acting unionist who at heart cherished the belief of federal usurpation and hoped and labored for the hour of confederated state resistance. It may not be without interest to call attention at this point to a few coincidences in the careers of Jefferson Davis and Abraham Lincoln. They were both born in Kentucky, Davis in the southwestern, Lincoln near the central part of the state. They were both near the same age, Davis being less than nine months the elder. Both were taken in their early years from their birthplaces, Davis's parents emigrating south to Mississippi, Lincoln's north to Indiana and Illinois. Both were soldiers in the Black Hawk War, Davis as lieutenant of regulars, Lincoln as captain of volunteers. Both were candidates for presidential electors in 1844. Both were soon elected to Congress, Davis in 1845, Lincoln in 1846. Both were successful politicians and popular orators. Both were instinctively studious, introspective, self-contained. Both rose to distinction through the advocacy of an abstract political idea. Both became the chiefs of opposing sections in a great civil war. These are the only points of resemblance, and the contrasts running through their lives are bold and radical. It is unnecessary to present them in detail. They are comprehended and expressed in their opposing leaderships. If chance or fate had guided their parents to exchange their roots of emigration from Kentucky, if Lincoln had grown up on a southern cotton plantation and Davis had split rails to fence a northern farm, if the tall Illinois pioneer had studied trigonometry at West Point and the pale Mississippi student had steered a flatboat to New Orleans, education might have modified but would not have essentially changed either. Lincoln would never have become a political dogmatist, an apostle of slavery, a leader of rebellion. Davis could never have become the champion of universal humanity, the author of a decree of emancipation, the martyr to liberty. Their natures were antipodal, and it is perhaps by contemplating the contrast that the character of Davis may be best understood. His dominant mental traits were subtlety and will. His nature was one of reserve and pride. His biographers give us no glimpse of his private life. They show us little sympathy of companionship or sunshine of genial humor. 
Houston is reported to have said of him that he was as ambitious as Lucifer and as cold as a lizard. His fancy lived in a world of masters and slaves. His education taught him nothing but the law of subordination and the authority of command. A Democrat by party name, he was an aristocrat in feeling and practice. He was a type of the highest Southern culture and most exclusive Southern caste. In political theory, he was a sophist and not a logician. With him, consent of the governed in the South was truth. Consent of the governed in a territory was error. Rebellion in a state must be obeyed. Rebellion in a territory must be crushed. Constitutional forms in Kansas in the interest of slavery were sacred law. Constitutional forms in the Union in the interest of freedom were flagrant usurpation. A majority in a state was enthroned freedom. A majority in the nation was insufferable despotism. But even his central dogma became pliant before considerations of self-interest. In his own state, a majority of 7,000 against Quitman in September, he treated as a dangerous political heresy to be overthrown by his personal championship. A majority of 1,000 against himself in November, he affected to regard as a command to stultify his own opinions. His beliefs were at war with the most essential principles of American government. He denied the truth of the Declaration of Independence, denied the right of the majority to rule, denied the supremacy of the national constitution, his narrowness was of that type which craved the exclusion of northern teachers and the official censorship of school books to keep out abolition poison. It was in perfect keeping with his character and imperfect illustration of the paradoxical theories of his followers that holding the lash over fifty or a hundred slaves or exercising an inflexible military dictatorship over nine millions of his people, he could declaim in fervid oratory against the despotism of a majority. One of his most salient traits was the endeavor to maintain a double position on the question of disunion. His leadership of the resistance party in Mississippi in 1850-51 gave him a conspicuous starting point as an instigator of sedition, and while laboring then and afterwards to unite the South in extreme political demands and in armed preparation for war against the Union, if those demands were not complied with, he has constantly declared that he was no disunionist. Of course, he could do this only by setting at defiance the plainest meaning of words and the clearest significance of acts. As the slavery contest drew to its culmination, his recklessness of assertion and antagonism of declaration on these points reached an extreme, entitling them to be classed among the curiosities of abnormal mental phenomena. As a blind man may not be held responsible for his description of a painting or a deaf-mute be expected to repeat accurately the airs of an opera, so we can only explain Jefferson Davis's vehement denial of the charge of hypocrisy and conspiracy through a whole decade by the supposition that he was incapable of understanding the accepted meaning of such words as patriotism, loyalty, allegiance, faith, honor, and duty. On no other hypothesis can we credit the honesty of convictions and sincerity of expression of sentiments so diametrically opposed as the following which occur in the same speech. Neither in that year, 1852, nor in any other, have I ever advocated a dissolution of the Union or a separation of the state of Mississippi from the Union, except as the last alternative, and have not considered the remedies which lie within that extreme as exhausted or ever been entirely hopeless of their success. I hold now, as an announced on former occasions, 
that whilst occupying a seat in the senate i am bound to maintain the government of the constitution and in no manner to work for its destruction that the obligation of the oath of office mississippi's honor and my own require that as a senator of the united states there should be no want of loyalty to the constitutional union whether by the house of representatives or by the people if an abolitionist be chosen president of the united states you will have presented to you the question of whether you will permit the government to pass into the hands of your avowed and implacable enemies without pausing for your answer i will state my own position to be that such a result would be a species of revolution by which the purposes of the government would be destroyed and the observance of its mere forms entitled to no respect in that event in such manner as should be most expedient i should deem it your duty to provide for your safety outside of a union with those who have already shown the will and which would have acquired the power to deprive you of your birthright and reduce you to worse than the colonial dependence of your fathers as when i had the privilege of addressing the legislature a year ago so now do i urge you to the needful preparation to meet whatever contingency may befall us the maintenance of our rights against a hostile power is a physical problem and cannot be solved by mere resolutions not doubtful of what the heart will prompt it is not the less proper that due provision should be made for physical necessities why should not the state have an armory for the repair of arms for the alteration of old models so as to make them conform to the improved weapons of the present day and for the manufacture on a limited scale of new arms including cannon and carriages the casting of shot and shells and the preparation of fixed ammunition that man is not to be envied whose reason can be quieted by a casuistry capable of discovering consistency between these and analogous propositions from declarations of this quality he could prove his record black or white as occasion demanded and in face of direct threats of secession in mississippi denying the united states senate without wincing that he had avowed disunion sentiments montgomery having witnessed the glories of such an inauguration pageant as could be extemporized davis proceeded to the appointment of his cabinet robert toombs of georgia was made secretary of state c g memminger of south carolina secretary of the treasury l p walker of alabama secretary of war s r mallory of florida secretary of the navy j h regan of texas postmaster general and j p benjamin of louisiana attorney general various acts of the provisional congress authorized the new executive to continue the organization of the provisional government of the confederate states a regular army of about ten thousand men was ordered to be established a navy of ten steam gunboats authorized to be constructed or purchased hundred thousand volunteers for twelve months authorized to be enlisted and existing state troops to be received into the provisional army a loan of fifteen million dollars was authorized and an ex export duty on cotton of one eighth per cent per pound levied to pay principal and interest among the first executive acts davis assumed control of military operations in the several seceded states and his secretary of war march nine made a requisition of eleven thousand volunteers for contingent service at charleston pensacola and other points agents were dispatched to europe to purchase material of war and to obtain if possible a recognition of the confederate states by foreign powers as a matter of the greatest immediate necessity a commission of three persons was appointed to proceed to washington to bring about the peaceful acquiescence of the united states in the dismemberment of the union End of chapter 13